I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, May 13th, 2013. Now this will be a short broadcast week. Not broadcast day, but short broadcast week. As I will be traveling to Montana to uh, speak at the Reformation Montana Conference. And the more I prepare my lectures, the more I'm feeling like I need to say some things that need to be said. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebrew. I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There's no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to see if it squares with God's word. Y'all familiar with that uh, wonderful portion of the Ten Commandments about thou shalt not take God's name in vain? Well, taking God's name in vain, and this is a point that I make from time to time here at Fighting for the Faith, is so much more than somebody on their smartphone in a text message typing OMG. Now, granted, that's technically taking God's name in vain, but um, that's like straining a gnat and swallowing a camel, all right? And what I mean by that is, is that if you're going to sit there and, uh, and you know, smack a kid upside the head for typing OMG in a text message, be prepared to, with as much force, if not more, uh, to, uh, to smack upside the head your pastor if he is wrongly handling God's word and telling you things that aren't true regarding what God's will is for you, what sound doctrine is, and, and things like that. In other words, he's twisting God's word. There is an epidemic of that in the church, and uh, we cover that on a daily basis here at Fighting for the Faith. Now, real quick, like I uh, alluded to, in fact, I didn't just allude to it, I mentioned it and, and clearly explained it. This is going to be a short broadcast week. I'm going to be taking 
uh, Friday and uh, Thursday and Friday off here at Fighting for the Faith. I will be doing new programs on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and chances are pretty good that we're still going to have a light episode on Wednesday due to the fact that uh, you know I'll be traveling on Wednesday to the uh, fine state of Montana. And uh, in preparation for uh, participating in the Reformation Montana Conference, and if you have an opportunity to make it out to Montana and attend the conference, then you know, you know, hop in the car, get, grab an airplane. You know, I don't know how you grab an airplane, but um, you know, and so you know, be there. I think it's going to be a very important uh, conference. You know. And you know, I'm really looking forward to seeing how all of the different speakers—myself, James White, uh, J.D. Hall, and uh, Phil Johnson—you know—how all of our different lectures uh, work together, if you would. I, there's no collusion on our parts. At least, I don't know if uh, Phil Johnson's been contacting the other speakers, but I have not been contacting any of the other speakers. And uh, and you know, I, since I'm going to be the, uh, the the lone Lutheran in the in the bunch, it it ought to be interesting. Although. <clears throat> kind of a kind of a drop a little hint here um one of the points that i will be making will rely heavily upon uh dr bonson <laughs> good, good reform presuppositionalist uh, the interpreter of van teel uh but um there's some of the things he says in uh in fact i recently have been reading his uh, book on presuppositional apologetics as far as defined and sta- you know stated and defended and um there's some just fantastic points uh, with the the concept regarding Christ as Lord uh, being the uh, the foundation of our basic apologetic, and I will be working from that assumption and, and actually stating that as I as as we examine, if you would, uh, the compromised church. So yeah, I, I've got the compromised church like on the brain right now, and it seems like I am consumed. Uh, with uh, you know, in in preparation for our lectures, so hopefully I'll be able to execute them. <laughs> you know, there's nothing worse than spending a lot of time preparing uh, for a lecture and then at the end of the day <laughs> when you deliver it, just falling flat. But see, that's the story of my life. And plus, those of you in attendance will be able to see me in my new hipster glasses. Yeah, um, it's not like I'm trying to be a hipster. In fact, um, I'm fairly convinced that the new glasses that I got, I had, you know, I went to the eye doctor a few weeks ago, and. Uh, they like really bumped up my prescription, both for the uh, the top layer of my glasses as well as the bottom layer. So you know, I wear bifocals, and uh, you know, it's been three years since I've had my prescription updated, and I quite frankly have gotten tired of those thin granny glasses type things, and uh, don't find that they're. It's tougher to get a good focus. Uh, when you're looking at the you know at the bottom part of your glasses when you have bifocals, it's tough to get a, a good focus when uh, you know the focal range in the bifocal is so thin or so short because you you have these glasses that are short you know they're not very tall you know that it's the old gr- granny glasses so I got rid of those and I went with something that looks like you know I I you know if you were to take a black and white photo of me from Kind of the side, you know, one of those portraits. Um, I you can make you can actually take it and plug it into like a 1956 high school yearbook. Yeah, I I'd look like I fit right in. But you know, I got to tell you this: uh, this decision was made purely at, at not not fashion statement. It was made purely pragmatically, and that has to do with the fact that I want to be able to see. And I want a wide field of vision, and I want my I, there enough to be enough room in my glasses for bifocals. So I went with the ultimately nerdiest thing I could find, 
And I just don't care if people think it's hipster or not because I didn't get it to be a hipster. In fact, I'm pretty convinced that if more old guys like me, you know, with gray in their beards and uh, overweight and things like that, wore these types of glasses, that the hipsters would stop wearing them so we could claim them back. Because the last thing a hipster wants to do is be associated with fashion-wise for them to go, oh, yeah, Rosebro, where you see if as soon as you do something like that, they're, they're going to change. Hipster will completely change and it'll no longer include these glasses. So. Yeah, I don't know why I'm talking about that. Anyway, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. We have a Patricia King update. We're going to be listening to Patricia King having a conversation with a guy named Johnny Enlow, who apparently has received direct revelation from God regarding the seven mountain mandates. Uh, this would be dominionist um, theology here. And he's going to, uh, in, in this conversation, Patricia King and Johnny Enlow are going to give us strategies for the seven mountains. And uh, interesting, worth passing along. We have a Roman Catholic Church update. Um, I think this past week, if I'm understanding the timeline correctly, uh, the, the newly um, arisen, uh, uh, elected, um, you know, I don't know what the right word is, uh, the new Pope, uh, Pope Francis, has canonized 800 new saints. And this is a story worth covering uh, for this exact reason, and that is is that this shows that uh, Roman Catholicism, which, by the way, is not historic Catholicism. Yeah, Roman Catholicism is, is an oxymoron, okay? I can say I'm a Catholic, but I there ain't no way I would say I'm a Roman Catholic. And this is another reason why, is because they have a completely unbiblical concept regarding the hagioi, the, 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 the saints. We'll talk about that today. We have a Stephen Furtick update, and uh, he's going to be answering the question, did God make a mistake? Uh, we're going to focus a little bit more on uh, Stephen Furtick's narcissistic uh, way of handling God's word. And then in hour number two, <clears throat> this sermon review will be the equivalent or the theological equivalent of me taking a, a glove with you know, long steel claws and then taking it and, and and dragging it down a chalkboard with you tied to a rope in a chair in you know, in the same room. Uh, we're going to be listening to a Heath Mooneyhan sermon uh, from yesterday. Yeah, normally, I don't review sermons this quickly after they come out. I try to put a little bit of time, but considering the fact that yesterday was Mother's Day and a lot of the seeker-driven guys are doing, you know, family-oriented or mom-oriented sermon series. Uh, Heath Mooneyhan, of course, is uh, following suit. But man, this is one of those sermons you sit there and go, really? Uh, you know, the name of the sermon, by the way, is What If? And, uh, you know, of course, he's going to... Think of it this way, okay? This is the equivalent of getting marriage advice from your seven-year-old. That's the only way I can describe it. I mean, how many of you would go to a seven-year-old for and, and to receive marriage counseling. Now, I know none of you are raising your hand. <laughs> He's going to, oh, yeah, I, can't, I just want to jump at the opportunity. Yeah, exactly. Or, or would any of you, like, go to, you know, go to a six-year-old to get driving advice, you know, better tips on how to, you know, to drive in a way that, you know, you will, you know, make your car last longer and stretch out your fuel economy and things like that. No one would go to a six-year-old for this. Yeah, same thing with Heath Mooneyhan. Um, yeah, the, he's giving his <clears throat> his opinion, his two cents, his spin regarding you know important things that families should be doing and parents should be doing and and stuff like that. And 
it's clear he has no clue what he's talking about, and uh, he's the, like the last person on planet Earth I would ever go to, uh, to you know, to ask advice or get advice from uh, regarding the topic that he's preaching on. And of course, he <clears throat> to uh, to make it appear Christian, he's thrown in a couple of verses, and and I do mean that. I mean, this is a very small smattering. You know, this is. This, you know, think of it this way. If you were to think of like an exegetical sermon as being a steak, right? Um, you know, it's something that you, there's the steak, it's on your plate and, you know, you're working your way through an entire text and you have to cut it up into bite-sized pieces and, and of course, a good pastor will season that steak really well so that each and every bite is just full and bursting with flavor. And and you're, you're chewing on it. And it's just great. You know, it's satisfying. You feel like you're being fed. It's a decent meal. And oh, you're, every bite is, well, you know, something to be excited about. Well, this isn't that. The sermon we're going to be reviewing today, God's Word does make an appearance. But it's as if... Um, God's word has been reduced to a dry two day old piece of bacon broken up into tiny little bits and then sprinkled, um, over tofu, you know, it may be three pieces of bacon. So you got, you got a slab of tofu and you, you, you go and grab a, you know, some, you know, two day old bacon bits and you grab one bit and then you drop it on the tofu, and then, and then you go grab another bit, and then you know you you know you don't want to put too much of that on the tofu, so you put it over on the opposite corner of the tofu, and then you go grab another bit, and maybe put that one in the middle, and so you know three, and you're thinking, oh yeah, I'm gonna be generous here, I'm gonna go grab it, you know, there we go, a fourth bit, and just plop it on there, and so the bacon bits on you know on the top, the four tiny broken up pieces of bacon bits represent the biblical meal that you'll be getting. The rest of it is dubious as to its nutritional value. I've not, I'm no fan of tofu. Anyway, so that's uh, what we're going to be doing on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I strongly recommend that you take the crash position, put on your tinfoil pyramid hat and uh, things like that to protect yourself because uh, we're going to be starting off with a Patricia King update. And with that, here we go. So, um, are you um, actively involved in helping to bring the kingdom of God to the, different, the, the seven different mountains that are out there? And you're thinking, seven mountains? What's that? Well, uh, last time I checked the Bible, the seven mountains were the terrible thing that were in Babylon, the horror of Babylon, you know, things like that. But apparently this is a good thing now. Um, so the seven mountains is a mandate given to bring the kingdom of God here on earth in seven distinct mountains. Um, they're obviously allegorical mountains, but you get what I'm saying. Well, Patricia King recently on her, um, everlasting love internet based television program, um, this makes me wonder if it actually shows up on God TV or not, um, recently sat down with Johnny Enlow to discuss strategies for bringing the kingdom of God into these seven different mountains and i'm gonna to have to google this while they're talking to see if i can figure out what these seven different mountains are apparently one of the mountains is religion but um see if any of this makes any sense to you here's patricia king and johnny enlow well 
Welcome to Everlasting Love. My name's Patricia King, and I'm glad that you've joined us for today's program. We're going to be speaking about seven mountain strategies, and I'm sure that you'll want to know exactly what that is and how you can step into this God-given strategy in this hour. We have with us special guest, Johnny Enlow. And Johnny, you have um, authored uh, the Seven Mountain uh, Prophecy book and also Seven Mountain Mantle, which is new. And you and your wife have uh, worked on the workbook for a DVD series that will... A Seven Mountain Mantle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no idea what that means. We'll tell our viewers about uh, later, but I'm so excited to have you on our program. You are a credible prophet in the body of Christ, and as a ministry, we highly respect you and, and uh, love everything that you represent in the Lord. Well, thank you so much, uh, Patricia. It's a real uh, privilege and pleasure for me to be on this program. And yeah, we're very excited about the time that the Lord has us allowed to be on planet Earth. These are the most exciting days imaginable. And uh, we, are, we are excited how the Lord is sharing with us some of how His kingdom is coming. Really, the seven mountain mantle, the seven mountain prophecy, the seven mountain mandate. Is is this under the seven mountain prophecy? By the way, the seven mountains are the mountain of business, the mountain of government, the mountain of family, the mountain of religion, the mountain of media, the mountain of education, and the mountain of entertainment. Apparently, God's kingdom is coming through these seven different <clears throat> mountains, uh, through the seven mountain prophecy, of course. Standing of the kingdom of God. It's awesome, you know. Like there's 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 such a paradigm shift in our generation regarding how we view the expression of our Christianity in the earth. Because it used to be like, you know, it was all about going to church or getting people into the church. But but really in the Gospels, Jesus said, you know, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yeah, and you have no clue what that means, do you? Of course the kingdom of heaven was at hand when Jesus was there because he's the king. And Jesus was the one who preached repentance and the forgiveness of sins. By the way... Um, John the Baptist, who was preparing the way for Jesus, what was his message again? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what did John the Baptist do? Uh, well, he baptized people. What was his baptism for, according to you know the gospel writers? It was for the forgiveness of sins. So here we got Patricia King saying, yeah, you know, in the past, it was all about getting people into church. But now we got this exciting stuff because, remember, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven's at hand. So that means I can meet, I can make that mean whatever I want it to mean. No, you must interpret Scripture by Scripture. And it's very clear when we take a look at the, what the God's Word says, especially the New Testament, regarding this topic, that the kingdom of heaven is advanced through the proclamation of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. It is not, uh, well, let's put it this way. It's not, uh, it's not advanced by... Um, uh, reclaiming the seven mountains. The scriptures nowhere teach the seven mountains. Where did the seven mountain stuff come from? The seven mountain prophecy. This is from. This is a, if you would, a paradigm regarding the understanding of the kingdom of God that has its source not in the Bible, but has its source outside of the Bible. We continue. And everything he taught was about the kingdom of heaven. And he said, to pray in this way, your kingdom come, your will be done. So when you receive this, seven mountains... And again, uh, yes, from the Lord's Prayer, we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But how does God's kingdom come to us? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, see, here's the deal. 
I'll give you kind of like a multiple choice uh, way of answering this question. Does the kingdom of God come when a poor person is given resources for them to have, well, to be able to uh, uh, pay for food at a low cost or a reduced rate or, you know, through assistance of some kind? Is that how the kingdom of God comes? Or does the kingdom of God come when that um, same poor person is confronted with their sins and they're brought to penitent faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins? Now, keep in mind, in scenario number one, the assistance that could come to that poor person could come in the form of food stamps. So are we going to say that, oh, well, food stamps is the way in which the kingdom of God is advanced? Yeah, I don't think so. Um, I just don't think that's exa- I don't think that's what Scripture teaches at all. Like nowhere. Instead, the kingdom of God advances and grows through people who are penitently brought to faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Only then are they citizens of the kingdom of God. And until then, they are rebels. They are hostile rebels. They are belligerents in the continuing battle again. You know that. Uh, started when Satan rebelled against God and caused a third of the angels to rebel against God, and they were f- thrown out of heaven. You know, there's been a there's been a war going on for several thousand years, um, many multiple thousands of years, if you would, and we are born as belligerents in that war, and we're not on the side of God. We're on the side of the devil and the demons, and the kingdom of God comes to us when our citizenship is transferred from the citizenship of the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. <clears throat> Read Corinth, uh, not Corinthians, Colossians, you know, the opening chapters, if you're not sure what I'm talking about. We continue. Prophecy, you know, which was a, a, a powerful word that's been delivered um, in many nations. And, of course, we know our good friend uh, Lance Wallnow has been carrying this message. Right. And YWAM over the years with yes. Lauren Cunningham has been featuring this message. But you actually received a direct word from the Lord on this. It carries a lot of weight. You're- now, keep this in mind. Johnny Enlow um, is claiming that he has received a direct word from God. Now, this elevates him to a different status. This puts him in a different category altogether. He's claiming prophetic status. That means everything he says must be scrutinized down to the nano uh, degree, if you would, nano theology, um, because he's claiming to be receiving direct revelation from God. In fact, if he is receiving direct revelation from God, anybody opposing the message that he received from God is not opposing Johnny Enlow, but is opposing God himself. But if he didn't really receive this word from God, well, then he's a false prophet, and he's guilty of breaking the commandment that says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Because what he's doing is cloaking himself and shrouding himself in the name of the one true God, claiming that everything that he's telling you is has its origin from God, and he's obeying what God told him. And if you disagree... With Johnny Enlow, well, then you are doing nothing less than opposing God himself. So we got a problem. Our whole book on the Seven Mountain Prophecy is about that. But over the years now, since you received that prophecy in 2008, you've been encouraging the body to literally do kingdom in seven spheres of influence. Do kingdom. Wow. 
That's crazy. Society. So tell us about those seven realms. Yeah, and you know, the, the kind of the intro to the understanding for myself is I was going to the nations and seeing the Lord show up with great presence and power, but wasn't seeing the, 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 the cities and regions actually change. And I was reading the dangerous scriptures, ask of me and I'll give you the nations for an inheritance right. and go and disciple nations. And so I knew instinctively there had to be structures that had to be discipled and not just individuals. Right. That we couldn't get just enough individuals, but we actually had to change the structures. But I didn't know which ones they were. And really at the end of 2006, I began to have some encounters and experiences with the Lord where he showed me a connection with the seven sectors, head sectors of society, which I'll mention in just a moment. And the seven enemy nations of the children, uh, the children of Israel had as they went to the promised land, the Hittites, Jebusites, Perizzites, all the ites there. And how each one of them represented an enemy or a principality and his demons that operated in one of the seven head sectors of society. So when we're talking about the seven mountains. So the Perizzites, the Hittites, the Uptites, and the Balletites all represent some kind of demonic dominion? Yeah, sorry. You can't even come close to defending that from Scripture. We're talking about these seven head spheres, mm -hmm. and uh, the one we've known about all along is the one of religion, where the right. church is, right. and where we've recognized our assignment. We thought if we could get just enough people saved, then we'd see our nations right. changed, but it hasn't happened in that kind of way. And so... So, really, so we're going to do kingdom, and I'll understand that religion now is just one of the seven mountains. But, you know, God's going to cause all kinds of amazing things to happen, not just through the mountain of religion, you know, getting people saved, but other ways, apparently. The other areas are, we call them mountains or spheres or whatever. I'll call them the mountain of media, the mountain of economy or business, uh, the mountain of government, the mountain of education, the mountain of family, the mountain where arts and entertainment are celebrated. Right. Yeah, you know, this teaching is a mountain in and of itself. It's a mountain of Scubalon. So those are the other six mountains, and combined with this, those are the seven mountains. And it's an understanding that the kingdom of God was made to show up in all these sectors of right. society. Really all society, but these are the seven head sectors of right. society. And if you are able to invade the head, yeah, it, it, it goes out, reverberates into the rest of society if the seven head sectors are influenced. And so we want to bring to these seven head sectors of society, uh, manifest the God, not just of salvation, which is of the mountain of religion, but the God of salvation, that right. he has the better than plans for every sector of society, right. that he's not. So not just the God of salvation, but the God of salvation, like solvency, I'm assuming. Yeah. Oh, my. Confused or are thrown for a loop by uh, modern uh, our modern world, uh, Facebook and Twitter hasn't messed him up. That he oh well, that's good. I'm so glad God isn't confused by Facebook and Twitter. Although I think the Holy Spirit of Melissa Fisher is because he has no clue how to get a hold of anybody unless he get first gets a hold of Melissa Fisher. Yeah, yeah, you've heard the our. Well, in fact, I'll play it during the break here. Our uh, Max Holiday sketch with Melissa Fisher receiving direct revelation from the Holy Spirit to give a word of knowledge to somebody. You know, and and the Holy Spirit says. Hi, hi, Melissa. You know, the world is so confusing. I don't know how to get a hold of anybody. You know, the uh, Twitter and Facebook. I mean, it, you know, it used to be you could look somebody up on the white pages, but, you know, now, you know, they've moved all that stuff online and, 
you know, I'm kind of old school and I don't even know how to do that. And, you know, and so could you make one of those fancy videos and let somebody know that I'm trying to reach them? You know, that kind of thing. <clears throat> we continue. Perfectly fine, understands how to operate in our structures, in our system, in our society. And he has the better than plans for every area of society. I just think it's, it, it's awesome. Like, we were made for this. We were made to rule and reign in, in the book of Revelation. Oh, man, could you imagine Patricia King ruling and reigning? It would literally, I think, it would be the end of the world. <laughs> okay, that I got to stop there. That is, <laughs> I can't, that's a thought that just like, boom, blew my mind. Oh, man. The thought of Patricia King ruling and reigning. Whew. Yeah, I'm going to have to take a break after that. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to take a look at a Pope Francis Roman Catholic Church story regarding 800 new saints. Do a Stephen Furtick update and a Heath Mooneyhan sermon review in hour number two. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. It's like what not to wear for theology. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. You have reached the voice mailbox for Melissa Fisher. Please leave a message after the tone. When finished, you may press one for more options. Hi, Melissa. It's the Holy Spirit. Um, I was wondering if you could help me out. I'm, I'm trying to uh, you know, get a hold of a guy named Vincent. That I, I can't remember his last name. This guy wants me to make myself real in his life, but I can't find his address or his phone number or email. The world is so complicated. You know how hard it is to find somebody if you can't remember their last name? Do you know how many Vincents there are in the world? He's, he said that he would leave his sin behind if I could just, you know, somehow reach out to him and prove that I'm real. So if you could make one of your really fancy videos and tell him that I'm calling him by name, but don't tell him that I can't remember his last name, I, I really would appreciate it. Oh, and, uh... One more thing, you might want to mention something about his adventurous heart. That way he'll know that the message is for him. Thanks, Melissa. I, you know, I don't know what I'd do without you. Hey, everyone. This word is for Vincent. Vincent, the Lord calls you by your name, and he is making himself known to you today. Now that he has made himself known to you, remember what you said. You said, Lord, if you would call me, if you would make yourself real, that I would come and I would leave, absolutely leave 
all of it behind and come to you because you've been wavering between two opinions. Now here it is. Vincent, the Lord is calling you. Come to him. The life is better on this side. Believe me. Give up the unfruitful works of darkness and walk completely in the light. And I tell you, Vincent, you won't be sorry. The Lord is ready to show you a mighty, mighty adventure. That adventurous heart that you have, the Lord is going to really, really reach in and he's going to satisfy that heart in you. And it's going to be even more than you ever could have planned on your best day. So Vincent, come to the Lord. Wait no longer. Vacillate between two opinions no longer. Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Mark your calendar now for April 25, 26, and 27, 2014. You see, it's not too soon to be making your plans, saving your pennies, and asking for work off April 25, 26, and 27 of 2014 for the 11th annual Branson Worldview Weekend. This past year, we had people from all over the country and actually from other countries join us in the beautiful rolling hills of Branson, Missouri. So if you're looking to attend the premiere Understanding the Times Biblical Worldview Weekend and join us April 25, 26, and 27 of 2014 for the Branson Worldview Weekend. It's for all ages. Children 11 and under are free. We also have a group rate and a family rate. The Worldview Weekends have been around since 1993. So we're one of the oldest Biblical Worldview conferences in America. So mark your calendar now for Branson, Missouri, April 25, 26, and 27, 2014. All right, we're back. Uh, Warning, what benefit is there to the, quote, kingdom of God if the people who are, well, being affected by the kingdom of God aren't actually citizens because they're not repenting and believing? 
just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see our famous two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. We truly cannot uh, exist and continue doing what we're doing without it. Moving along. Time for a Roman Catholic Church update. Have you ever had a conversation with a friend of yours that's a Roman Catholic and you talk about being good or bad or sinning and things like that and they say something to the effect of, well, I'm no saint, but, you know, and they'll say, you know, something to the effect of, and don't you always find that language to be kind of weird from somebody who's claiming to be a Christian? They'll say, well, I'm no saint. Well, what are they doing there? Well, they've got a kind of a, well, a hierarchy, if you would, set up within Christianity that isn't even biblical. If you are truly a penitent sinner who trusts in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, your sins have been washed away, um, well, and you're regenerate, born again, you know, all that kind of stuff, then you are already a saint according to Scripture. So, yeah, I just want to kind of we'll flesh that out here in a second. So let me kill the music, although I think this is so appropriate. All right, enough of that. Okay, so uh, let me read the story. This is a story that comes to us via the Global Christian Post. So this is the Global Christian Post. Um, the headline reads, Pope Francis canonizes 800 new saints. And it's like, really? 800 new saints? Whew. Yeah, there's more saints listening to Fighting for the Faith at this moment and then there are new saints within the Roman Catholic Church, and the reason for that is is because I'm going with the biblical definition and understanding, the New Testament concept of saint, which would mean if you're a Christian, you are, is one. Yeah, you get what I'm saying. <clears throat> so um, who wrote this, by the way, here? Um, this was written by Justin Sarachik of the um, of the Christian Post. So the story reads, uh, the new saints made up mostly of Italian martyrs who were killed during the 15th century for not converting to Islam were the first men and women elected to sainthood under Pope Francis's papacy. See, this is just backwards to me. Let me see if I got this right. Okay. New saints made up of mostly, okay, uh, first men and women elected to sainthood under Pope Francis' papacy. Since when did popes decide who and who wasn't a saint? This is really odd to me. And only 800 of them, really? Okay. So, uh, quote, um, this is of, this is from a, a, a direct quote from uh, Pope Francis. Quote, let us look on the new saints in the light of the word of God, proclaimed 
a word that invited us to be faithful to Christ, even unto martyrdom, a word that recalled us to the urgency of the beauty of bringing Christ and his gospel to everyone, a word that spoke to us about the witness of charity, without which even martyrdom and mission lo- uh, lose their Christian savor said pope francis the martyrs were killed by expanding ottoman em- uh, by the expanding ottoman empire in oronto Ar- italy in 1480 and beheaded for not denouncing their christian faith reports cnn now i'm going to stop there for a second here a little bit of a bunny trail think about this okay there are christian martyrs of plenty because do you know how islam um, advanced throughout, you know, eight, you know, in the ancient world, you, you think um, pressure cooker bombs are bad. <laughs> they weren't nearly as effective as this particular um, technique used by um, ancient Muslims. Not all that long ago, too. These, this, we're talking fifteenth century here. Um, it's real simple. Islam spread at the end of a sword, and um, Islam itself means submit. So if you were a Christian living in a newly conquered territory, newly conquered by Muslims, um, you were given an opportunity to submit. And submitting, uh, you know, the conversation went along the lines of this. You are a Christian? Yes. You will submit to Islam or you will die. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you said no... Allah is not Lord, Jesus is Lord, well, generally you lost your head, and I'm not talking about somebody going crazy or um, getting angry or something like that. We're talking about full-blown martyrdom. So just keep that in mind. The religion of peace historically spread in pretty much the most non-peaceful means ever known to the humanity of, or to humanity. You get what I'm saying here. But now, so now that I've got that <clears throat> sorted out, let's go back then to this news story here. Um, so Oronto uh, was one of the cities that stood in the way of Sultan Mohammed II as he set out to conquer Rome, reports NBC. As we venerate the martyrs of Oronto, the Pope said to Vatican Radio, let us ask God to sustain those many Christians in these times and in many parts of the world right now still suffering violence and give them the courage and fidelity to respond to evil with good. Mm-hmm. So... There's there's kind of the you know the news story. There's a little bit more to it, but I think you get the gist of it. But here, let me go back to the offending statement, if you would. And remember my my question at the beginning of the segment: Have you ever had a conversation with a Roman Catholic where they said something to the effect of, "Well, I'm no saint." You know, they they said something like that, and you think, you know, by, by the way, I, I you know, I have a lot of family members who are Catholic. Um, and Roman Catholic, and that's what I mean by that. And um, and so I, you know, I've been exposed to a lot of Roman Catholicism growing up, and have spent some time in Roman Catholicism as a kid. And it always struck me as odd when you know when listening to a family member, uh, you know, who was a devout Roman Catholic, then say, "Well, I'm no saint." Well, you know, because as I began to read my Bible, especially as I got into junior high and high school and then in college. It it just didn't that didn't square with scripture. And, and again, the question is, how does a pope elect saints? Well, let's take a look at what the Bible says, because I, I think that uh, Pope Francis thought it was a good idea for us to read our Bibles. And so I'm thinking we might want to do that. And so we're going to look at a couple of passages. OK, we'll do this with context, though. Acts chapter nine. I'll start at verse 10. 
Here's what it says. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Now, just so you know, what's happening here in this part of the story of the book of Acts is the apostle Paul is on his way to Damascus to round up Christians, arrest them, and you know, and have them punished for believing in Jesus, spreading false religion, according to uh, Saul at that time, right? He's not the apostle Paul yet. And God, Christ has appeared to him, blinded him, and he's been he's being led back into he's being led into Damascus, and Jesus is now appearing to Ananias, a Christian. And listen to what this says. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. Now, here's the question. Um, Okay, was Ananias referring to a, a particular strata of Christians when he said, you know, he's laid hands on your saints, you know, he's a, he's attacked your saints. Was he talking to only a select group of Christians? No, he was not. Um, the word saints, by the way, um, comes from the Greek word hagias, and it means holy. You know, the, so the saints are the holy ones. So he's not referring to a strata here. He's talking about to all of the Christians that's who he's referring to, the Christians at Jerusalem. He has done evil to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. Now, it's also important to note, if you want to take a look at a proper use of the word hagioi here, it's not referring to a particular strata of Christians. You know, like So in Christianity, we've got ordinary Christians... And then, of course, we've got the saints, the holy ones. These are the ones who are doing social justice. These are the ones who are doing the super special things. No, not at all. In fact, I would point to practically every one of Paul's letters and how they open. Let me give you some examples. Uh, Romans chapter 1, the... the, uh, the <clears throat> The uh, the verse in question is in verse 7, but I really want to read all of uh, the first few verses ahead of it for context's sake. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord." through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Yeah, so who did he write this letter to? The church in Rome, right? And here Paul is calling everybody who's receiving, who's there to hear this letter, he's calling them all 
saints. Well, you know, Paul kind of continues with that use of the word saints in a very broad way, referring to all Christians. Later in uh, his letter to uh, the Romans, Romans chapter 8, I'll start at verse 26 so we keep the context. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God, and we know for those who God uh, who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, is it saying here that the Holy Spirit only intercedes for those Christians up in the higher strata of the hierarchy of Christians, you know, you got your you got your peasant Christians down here, and then above them you've got your your, your Christians who are taking it more seriously, and then above them, well, there's the Hagioi, the saints. And see, the Holy Spirit, well, He only intercedes for them. That's not what He's saying. The saints here are all Christians. Why? Because all Christians have their sins washed away. They are set apart. They are sanctified. They are declared to be righteous and holy in God's sight because they are clothed in the righteousness of Christ that's imputed to them. All Christians are saints. This continues. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Was Paul only writing to the saints, you know, the the super holy people at Ephesus, in the church at Ephesus, or was he writing to all the Christians at Ephesus? Answer, all of them. Same thing with Philippians. Philippians 1, 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Yeah, see, over and again, over and again throughout the New Testament, saints are every Christian. If you are truly regenerate, truly born from above, born again, if you've been brought to penitent faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you confess Jesus Christ as God and Lord, you are presently a saint, and we, you don't need to wait for a pope to elect you. You know, sometime, you know, maybe five, six centuries from now. No, because it's not popes who elect saints. It is Christ who makes them. Christ who makes them through his powerful word and his gospel when he says to poor, miserable sinners, you are forgiven. That's when Jesus makes saints. See what I'm saying? Big difference. So, I mean, it's just, it's just a, a run-of-the-mill story, you know, of run-of-the-mill ordinary Roman Catholicism has run afoul of Scripture because it's not a pope who elects saints. It is Christ who makes them when they are born again, born from above, have their sins washed away, and the name of the triune God placed upon them. God is the one who makes saints. He does so, does so with shed blood of Christ applied to poor, miserable sinners so that they can be declared righteous in his sight on account of Christ. Big difference, and it's an important one that we must maintain and must share with our Roman Catholic family members and friends and neighbors to let them know that, no, 
if they truly are in Christ, then they is, are, currently, now, a saint. And if their church is telling them otherwise, then maybe their church isn't really the true church and isn't really truly teaching Catholicism, the ancient, historic, orthodox, Christian faith. Moving along. That's right, Stephen Furtick update. You're a man of God. Your hair strategically cut to the new style. The fever was fake and hot. You had one eye on the camera as you watched the crowd applaud. All of the pastors dreamed you'd be their mentor. You'd be their mentor. So vain. You probably think the Bible's about you. You're so vain. I bet you think the Bible's about you. Don't you? Don't you? So uh, Stephen Furtick's uh, blog has a, a fairly recent blog post entitled, Did God Make a Mistake? Now, obviously, the answer to the question is, well, no, especially if you understand the correct understanding of the doctrine of original sin and also understand that as you're listening to Stephen Furtick, it's not God who's made a mistake. It's he, who Stephen Furtick, who's making a mistake in his wrong handling of God's word. Dun, 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 dun. See, I'm getting distracted by the music. I'm loving it. All right, enough of that. <laughs> okay, so without any further ado, here is Stephen Furtick uh, answering the question, did God make a mistake? And he's making a huge, Stephen Furtick is, he's making a huge mistake in how he's applying Scripture and, and the understanding of the image of God. I'll explain along the way. Here's uh, Stephen Furtick. The Bible says that man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. We can be all put together on the outside, but until you realize that God has been at work since before you were born putting you together on the inside, you don't even have a clue how valuable you are in Christ. Wow. <laughs> yeah, narcissism uh, written with the capital S-T-E-V-E. Anyway, um, yeah, weird there. Um, see... <clears throat> He didn't he didn't make an allusion to scripture. Um, listen again. The Bible says that man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. We can be all put together on the outside, but 
until you realize that God has been at work since before you were born putting you together on the inside. You don't even have a clue how valuable you are. Oh, wow. I'm so important because I need to know that God's been working on me on the inside but since before I was born. Hog wash that is not what the bible teaches now let me let me make a you know a couple of things clear here if you have your bible flip on over to the gospel of mark chapter 7 the gospel of mark chapter 7 and um we're going to kind of pick up at the tail end of Jesus's chastisement of um of the Pharisees and the scribes who came to visit him from Jerusalem of course took issue with the fact that the uh, disciples were eating with with common hands. The Greek there is common. So they were eating with common hands, or you could say defiled hands. And why were they defiled? Because they were not ceremonially washed before uh, the disciples were eating their meal. And of course, everybody knows that if you, since cleanliness is next to godliness, if you don't wash your hands before you eat, then you, you soil your spirit and you become unclean in God's eyes. Well, at least that's what the Pharisees thought, and they couldn't have been farther from the truth. And so Jesus chastises them for making void the word of God through their tradition, basically teaching things that are not in Scripture, exalting their own man-made notions, and nullifying and letting go of God's clear word. Right. And then in for further clarification, starting at verse 14 of, of Mark, chapter seven, here's what Jesus said. So Jesus called the people to him again, and he said to them, hear me, all of you and understand there is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about this parable. Now it's funny, this wasn't really a parable. <laughs> you know, here Jesus' disciples think that, is, that Jesus is speaking parabolically. Yeah, he's not. Um, he's, this was just straight matter of fact. So he said to them, are you then also with understanding? Without understanding, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not into his heart, but into his stomach, and then is expelled? The Greek here is wonderful. It says, and then is, you know, and then leaves him and goes into the latrine, right? And so, thus, by saying this, he's declared all foods to be clean. And Jesus said, it's what comes out of a person that defiles him, for from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within, and they are what defile a person. Now, with this little bit of information, then... Could you somehow point me to something fantastic inside of you inside of you that tells me how important you are? Because if you examine your life in light of this list, um, I'm absolutely confident that 100% of everybody hearing my voice at this moment, whether it's a year from now, 10 years from now, or whatever, everybody hearing my voice, there was nobody left standing after I read that list. Let me, let me, okay, you know, if, if you're able, if you're left standing and this list, there's not a single thing on this list that doesn't apply to you, email me. I'd like to hear from you because uh, you, you obviously can walk on water. 
But let me let me read this list again. Jesus said, from within, out of the heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality. Have any of you had sexually immoral thoughts? Mm-hmm. Uh, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy. By the way, the Greek here is fantastic. Envy, uh, the Greek is uh, 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 somebody with an, uh, with an evil eye. Somebody with the, the evil eye. That, that, that means envy. Slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come within and they are what defile a person. Now, is there anybody after listening to that list that can say, oh, I'm undefiled? N- not No one. We're, this list shows that each and every one of us are defiled, that we are we have actually tested positive for the disease known as sin. And that disease is doing what it does, pro- producing the pussy, oozy, nasty, defiling, icky stuff that defiles us because we sin as a result of what comes. It's, sin starts in the heart. So here already, I mean, Stephen Furtick in this tiny little soundbite that we're going to be playing from him already is off on the wrong foot. Oh, you know, because he says, well, God looks at the heart. Well, that's not good news because God knows exactly what's inside of there. And Jesus himself makes it clear there ain't nothing good in there. Listen again. The Bible says that man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. We can be all put together on the outside, but... Until you realize that God has been at work since before you were born putting you together on the inside. No, you were born dead in trespasses and sins and at war with God. Read Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1, 2, and 3. You don't even have a clue how valuable you are. Oh, I'm so valuable. Right, yeah. In Christ. I want to say to every lady in our audience today, God Put you together. He formed you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Every part of you is intentional. Everything about you is something that was on his mind. You are unique. Really? So every part of you, you know, was it was intentional and on God's mind. So it was on God's mind. It was completely intentional on God's part that all the ladies listening to this message would sin through coveting, envy, backbiting, gossip. You, you get what I'm saying here? Um, yeah. So that that was all intentional on God's part. You are crafted in His image, Genesis 1.26, according to His likeness. Say it again. Like- Genesis 1.26 says that Adam and Eve were formed in the image of God. Adam and Eve. And that something terrible happened. And that is, is that, well, Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And by rebelling against God, their their children, they were born in the image of Adam and Eve, the sinners. Let me read this from Genesis chapter 4. See, if you're quoting Genesis chapter 1 and say, oh, you're in the image of God. Well, well you're just super special, super duper wonderful all inside and out. No, you're not. Adam and Eve sinned and every one of their children was born dead in trespasses and sins. I would point you to Romans chapter 3, for instance, where it says, there's none righteous, no, not one. Yeah, read that section from Romans chapter 3 and you realize, yeah, that, yeah mm-hmm, something's going wrong here. But Genesis chapter 5, I sorry if I said 4, it's actually Genesis chapter 5, lets us know that there's a change. There's a change that's going on here. Let me read to you from the book of Generations from Genesis chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Now, Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, notice it starts there with that we were, as humans, originally created in the image of God. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his 
own likeness, after his image. And so you, you begin to think, ooh, well, something's changed there. In fact, Genesis chapter 6 um, and 7 really lay this out. Let me read to you the opening portion of Genesis chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives, many that they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide with man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120, 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, uh, the men of renown. Now, real quick here, just a little quick hermeneutical note. Um, there are two schools of thought on this particular passage. Uh, one school of thought actually does go way back into the church fathers that believe that what we're talking about here in Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, are uh, procreation taking place as angels are mating with women. However, Jesus himself makes it clear that uh, the angels are not given in marriage, plus angels are spirit, they are not corporal. Um, and so, you know, that I think that that's not a good hermeneutic. I think that's not borne out, although there's many Christians throughout Christian history who believe that that's the case. I disagree with that interpretation. I'm with the other school, okay? That being the case, what's being talked about here, the sons of God, well, we're talking about intermarrying between those uh, who are godly believers with, well, the descendants of Cain. So you've got two tracks going on here. You have the descendants of Adam, the generations uh, following Adam and Seth and others, and then uh, the uh, the generations of Cain and his descendants, and so you have inter you know basically religious intermarrying, which shouldn't be taking place. I think that's a that's a valid interpretation of a more probable interpretation based upon Jesus's own claim regarding uh, angels. And so you know that's the school that I go into. But this is not one of those things that uh, rises to the level of you need to anathematize somebody if they have one view or another. I just don't think it's a tenable view uh, that we're dealing with angels. But we get to verse 5. Here's what it says. So the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually or all the time. And the Lord God regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So here's the idea is that, you know, Genesis chapter five makes it clear that because Adam and Eve sinned, that Adam and Eve's descendants are born in the image of Adam and Eve who are sinners and that this wickedness goes all the way down into the heart, which is exactly why Genesis 6, 5 says that the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. And the other passage there in Genesis says, from youth. You know, this is something that, you know, <laughs> it begins in the womb, if you would. So when uh, Stephen Furtick here is uh, puffing people's egos up and saying, wow, you are super de duper special and God looks on the heart and all this kind of stuff, and then he makes an appeal to Genesis chapter 1, that's a faulty appeal because that's pre-fall of man, that is pre-original sin, and it, you know, to make an appeal to that is to make it an appeal to Adam and Eve's nature prior to them rebelling against God. We continue. And he's God put me together. Yeah, you 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 got to get that deep down inside of yourself because some of you feel thrown together, and you're not thrown together. You, maybe they, the reason they feel that is because they understand how sinful they are. When it comes to your spiritual relationship with God, you're put together. He's matchy matchy. Let me read you a Bible verse. He's what? 
Matchy, matchy. What's that? About God's matchy, matchiness. Matchy, matchiness. <laughs> what is... Huh, I feel like I'm missing a cultural illusion here. Ephesians 2.10. Uh-huh. Ephesians 2.10. Now, what is... Notice here. In seeker-driven megachurches, in the purpose-driven churches, there is a rash of misreading of Ephesians 2.10. Um, and what I mean by that is, is that it's quoted oftentimes from the message paraphrase, although uh, Furtick is not going to read it from the message paraphrase here, but to tell you how wonderful you are. But see, Ephesians 2.10 is the you know, kind of concluding thought of a, of a bigger thought that begins... At verse 1, and it kind of has its culmination in verse 10. So let me read a little bit of Ephesians here so we understand what's really going on here. So that when somebody quotes Ephesians 2.10 for you out of context, uh, there's a better than 90% chance that they're they're twisting the passage. Not always, but I mean, there's 10% chance they may be correctly citing it. But it's always uh, dubious when, uh, you know, already we're off on the wrong foot. He's appealing to Adam and Eve, sin, uh, you know, their nature before they sinned, telling you how wonderful you are, talking about all the stuff on the inside, and God judges the heart, and yet Jesus says out of the heart comes all this evil, vile filth. And then <clears throat> here's what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, to the church in Ephesus, he, you know, talking before they were Christians, he says, and you were dead, you used to be dead in trespasses and sins. By the way, dead means, you know, dead. And in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Weird that, you know, here Furtick is going to read Ephesians 2.10, but if he would just read a few verses ahead, I mean, he couldn't be saying any of the stuff that he's saying. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with Jesus and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches and grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's not of yourself. This is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So um, we, the we are God's workmanship here, is not some universal statement. This is talking about those who are Christians and those who are Christians, they are in Christ Jesus and are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So God has saved us by grace through faith. It's a gift and not of ourselves. I mean, great stuff there, but it's fascinating to me as I continue to study and listen to seeker-driven sermons and exhortations and things of that nature that they skip Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 and just skip right over to verse 10 and oftentimes read it from the message paraphrase that says, oh, you are God's masterpiece. All of this designed to puff up your ego and not confront you with your sins and show you what a merciful and kind Savior you have who would forgive even somebody as sinful as you, born dead in trespasses and sins. Instead, the appeal here is to tell you just how amazingly wonderful you are. Hmm. Far from repentance and the forgiveness of sins. We continue. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the same essence 
of the sentiment that the psalmist is trying to communicate. God prepared things for you to do before you ever showed up on the scene. Yeah, because salvation apparently is being purpose-driven. And he created you to specifically match the very thing that he made you to do. Security in Christ begins when I realize that God put me together. He didn't throw me. Yeah, no, security in Christ begins and ends with, has its culmination uh, and consummation in Christ and Him crucified for our sins. Not how wonderful I am, because what does is, what is Paul write in Romans? That uh, God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, powerless, Christ died for the what? For who? The ungodly. You know, people like me, people like you. Together. Life didn't throw me together. I'm not an accident. The the circumstances surrounding my life do not reflect directly the intention of my life. The intention of my creator determines the direction of my life. God put me together. At all of our locations, clap your hands if you're grateful that your life was designed by a master creator yeah there you go so it kind of reminds me of that prophecy that the apostle paul gives let me see if i can uh, read this to you second timothy chapter 3 verse 1 now understand this that in the last days there will come difficult times times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self. Now you're thinking, wait a second. I mean, that's, you know, it's always been that way. There's always been lovers of self and lovers. Of, no, no, no. This is a prophecy about something that's going to take place in the church in the last times. Understand this. In the last days, there will come, well, great difficulty. People will be lovers of self, narcissistic. That's what we're talking about here. Um, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving the good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than loving, uh, lovers of God, having an appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. In other words, the Apostle Paul prophesying about men like Stephen Furtick doesn't say, well, go ahead and go to their church, you know, eat the meat, spit the bone. He says, avoid such people. Yeah, Stephen Furtick's gospel is gospel of narcissism, self-love, rather than God loving the unlovable in Christ by dying for their sins. Big difference in the messages. And, well, the end result of the two different types of messages, one true, the other false, the one self-love, the other Christ's love for us. Well, the difference is night and day, and the end result will be either heaven or hell, depending. So which gospel are you believing, the gospel of self-love or the gospel of Christ died for sinners, wicked and vile, who are defiled by the sin that burbles up from within their own hearts? See what I mean? All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we have a sermon re- review from Heath Mooneyhan. It'll be uh, nails on the chalkboard. Trust me, it's really that bad. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death 
of a salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Come in. What was I just doing, you might ask? Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of Pico Pond with my trusty double-barreled nuclear plasma cannon. Well, I just did in this video game. But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. They're not limited to just games, mind you. Oh, no! I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You gotta see it to believe it. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. Heading back to Joplin, Missouri to endure a full-length Heath Mooneyhan sermon. Makes you wonder if I'm being self-destructive in my behavior. All right, let's do this right. Here we go. The good, the bad, and, well, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's uh, Masleration 
comes to us via the Martext, known as Heath Mooneyhan, over there at Ignite Church in Joplin, Missouri. Now, after listening to a sermon like this, uh, it's probably good I- a good idea for you to avoid all churches with the word Ignite, Inflame, um, Revolution, um, Rebellion, you know, things like that. Uh, Revolts Church, you know, stuff like that, because that all generally takes you know, conjures up in my mind images regarding, you know, hell. So, and, well, you get what I'm saying. As we listen to this Masloration, keep this in mind. Pay close attention to how much biblical preaching you're getting and how much of Jesus you're really getting. Now, Heath is going to make a big deal in this sermon about really making a big deal about Jesus with your children. But what he fails to do in the sermon is actually practice what he preaches. Make a big deal about Jesus, you know, by actually preaching Jesus. You know, opening up one of the gospel texts and exegeting it through the entirety of it, you know, line by line, if you would. You know, like take the gospel of Matthew and work your way through it. The gospel of Mark, work your way through it. If you're going to make a big deal about Jesus, don't you think you want to, you know... Preach about Jesus from the biblical texts. You know, just saying. So you get what I'm saying. The name of this Masloration, by the way, is entitled What If. So imagine, if you would, what if. What if Heath Mooney had actually practiced what he preached and actually did preach Jesus rather than himself? What a difference it would make. I think that's a good way of putting it. So let me kill the music. Without any further ado, here is Heath Mooneyhan and his sermon entitled What If. Here we go. Today I want to talk to you about imparting spiritual life. How many of you, by the show of hands, have kids? You want to talk about imparting spiritual life. Kids. Have kids. Look at this fertile ground that we have here. Yes. And maybe don't have kids, but you're wanting in the future one day to have kids. Raise your hand. You don't have kids. Four sorry people. Uh, Five. We need to talk to these people. What? Do you know what kids do to you? Anyway, no, the kids are awesome, awesome, awesome. You know, uh, we live in a, a society to where kids are often looked at as burdens and all this stuff, but we do not believe that at all. Kids are incredible, incredible gifts from God's or from God. It, they are a blessing. Um, when asked this question, how would you define success in raising the next generation? Uh, there's the worldview. Uh, what culture says is this. Culture says that success is raising well-rounded, well-educated, happy, happy, happy kids. <laughs> so that's what culture says, that success is raising well-rounded, well-educated, happy kids. Well, let me just go ahead and address uh, the well-rounded part. Um, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. I don't know where we got this saying, saying we want our kids to be well-rounded. I hear that's like default mode with parents. I want my kids to be like well-rounded, man. And so it's funny that we look. So is it bad if parents want their kids to be well-rounded? I think the general idea is this, is that although kids might tell you, dad, when I grow up, I want to be a firefighter. They really probably don't know exactly what they want to be or what they're good at or the idea. So you have a well-rounded education uh, so that they, you know, they're exposed to a lot of different things in which they may be able to excel. And as they grow up and mature, they start to gravitate towards the thing that they're actually good at. But it doesn't hurt them 
to uh, have been exposed to other ideas and concepts that may not even be within their field of expertise as they go out into the workforce. This is actually a good thing. This is kind of the basic foundation of what's called a liberal arts degree. Not that you come out a liberal, but the idea is that you study all, you know, you have a a, a kind of a a certain depth of study across many different disciplines, including literature, science and you know things in mathematics and and you know stuff like that so that and history so that you can be exposed to a, a well-rounded edge this is a good thing not a bad thing and the fact that Heath Mooneyhan here is talking you know smack you know is that the right word is is talking down somebody who wants to raise their kids to be well-rounded shows that he doesn't know what he's talking about keep in mind he's also speaking as supposedly somebody who's a pastor so if if Heath Mooneyhan isn't in favor of people having a well-rounded education, the immediate question comes up, well, well is God against it? Am I sinning if I, if I want my kids to be well-rounded? And so it's funny that we look at our kids that way because I don't look at anything else in life that way. Um, like for- and you're the standard. So you don't look at anything else that way, so all of a sudden you're the standard. Your job is to preach the word, sir. Um, if it's not a sin for kids to, uh, for parents to raise well-rounded children, who cares if you think it's a good idea or not? For instance, if I am looking to hire on another staff person here at the church, and I'm not looking for somebody that's just oh well-rounded. Um, I'm looking for somebody with a specific vision, with a specific passion, with a specific set of skills. Yeah, so you don't want anybody, you know, if they're going to go and you know, be a praise band guy, you don't want him having studied math or history or science. You only want him to only have studied, you know, praise band worship, right? This is ridiculous on its face. And uh, I, I could care less if they know a, a little bit about a lot of things. I, want, I don't want them to be well-rounded. I want them for a specific task. But whenever it comes to our kids... <laughs> Seriously, you don't want them to be well-rounded. It just shows you don't know what you're talking about. And this has absolutely nothing to do with Christian sanctification or even raising our children as Christians. We live in the society where we've been brainwashed into believing that we have to raise our kids up to be well-rounded. And by well-rounded... Uh, yeah, that's right. You know, their Big Brother is sitting there beating us over the head. You better not. You better have well-rounded children or we're going to come and take you away to the concentration camps. <gasps> this is ridiculous. Uh, it means you want them to uh, try everything and get to know a little bit. Don't be really passionate about one thing. Just kind of be a multi-utility player out there. Again, you show your complete ignorance of the subject. The idea is is that kids, as they mature, may not understand what they're really passionate about. And by exposing them to a, a depth of knowledge across disciplines, they'll find the thing they really like and are passionate about. Good night. There, so I mean, we sign him up for every flipping sport known to man. I mean, we've got baseball, softball, football, basketball, volleyball, soccer ball, tennis ball for some strange ones, and like swimming. All you know, I don't know any kids who play every sport. I mean, that seems like an anomaly to me. And if they did. It would show that maybe they're 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 passionate about athletics. All this stuff, man. We've got our kids doing all this stuff. When we say well-rounded, that usually uh, we want our kids to bring home A's. Um, we yeah, because 
we don't like our kids failing or not living up to what they're capable of doing. Now, some kids, now listen, you know, my kids are all a little bit different. Um, you know, not, not talking down any of my kids, but some, a couple of my kids are, you know, of different intelligences than the other and have different passions towards another. And so if one of my kids is capable of getting an A and they don't apply themselves and they slack off and they end up getting a B or a C, they're in trouble. But if, you know, they really are applying themselves and, and really working hard and they get a B, I'm satisfied with that. But who cares how I parent or you parent? This is supposed to be a sermon. And a sermon is supposed to be based upon a biblical text. So now we're just having, well, dueling opinions. Is that what's supposed to happen in church? We, we just get really concerned with uh, making sure that our kids have a, a well-rounded environment. Which the truth is, is if, I, if I looked at my kids, I could care less. If they're well-rounded at all, I uh, I want my kids to have the. Well, that's great, great, and you definitely want your kids to grow up in your image. I get it. The blinders on when it comes to Jesus. I want them to be single-minded. I want them to be narrow-minded whenever it comes to Jesus too. I want. Now you've changed the subject. You want them to be narrow-minded about Jesus. That's getting a well-rounded education has nothing to do. It's not contrary to the concept of being narrow-minded regarding the truth regarding Jesus. Hoy! I want them to just, we set them on this path, and I want them to chase after Jesus with all their stinking heart in their life and let them know that nothing else matters. But the truth is, is that us Yeah, so, okay, so, Johnny, when you go to school, the only thing that matters is Jesus. So I don't care if your history teacher's te- trying to teach you history, if your science teacher's trying to teach you science, if your literature teacher's trying to get you to read good books. None of that matters. I just want you to be smart and single-minded about Jesus. I'm going to beat my head against a brick wall because that's, oh, I, yeah, we are four minutes into the sermon. I'm not going to make it. I can tell. I'm going to, like, spontaneously combust. This is a complete pooling of ignorance at this point. As parents, oftentimes we sacrifice our kids on the altar of success. We want our kids to be successful and happy. We want our kids to be happy, don't we? And all- Yeah, because that's a sin. You know, what we really need to strive for our kids, we want them to be unhappy and total failures. That's what Christians should really be shooting for. <sighs> Oftentimes, it's sort of like wanting our kids to follow Jesus. I want my kids to excel in things like love and generosity and faithfulness and integrity and honesty. Yeah, because they can't do that if they know their ABCs and one, two, threes. I could care less what they bring home in chemistry. I don't care if they're all up to date on all the social events of this world. Matter of fact, they would sleep better at night if they weren't up on all those events. Why exactly, Heath, are you preaching your opinions? Who cares? Your job's to preach the word, not your opinions. It's crazy the expectations that we have on our kids in the wrong sort of way sometimes. Some of you, though, are... And here's the weird, cruel irony of this sermon. Already we've, be, we've been introduced to Heath Mooneyhan's idea, I want them to excel in Jesus. Well, this sermon sure doesn't. Far from it. Weird, huh? Seriously obsessed as a parent with your kids getting all A's. 
Because you want them to be well-educated, right? you got to get all A's. That's all that matters. I'm going to punish you if you don't get A's because then you'll miss out on the scholarship. Or if you don't work out and you don't become this great athlete and all this stuff, you're, you're going to have to pay for your own college. And everybody knows you live in America and you have to go to college. You have to. Because that's what people do after high school. When did we become this society? Yeah, you know. Oh, this is terrible. Uh, we we, uh, we got a society where we expect people to go to college. Oh, we have fallen into the depths of evil. I mean, seriously, college, yeah. Oh, this is, uh, how dare we? I, we need to repent and stop sending our kids to college. It was not that way a generation or two ago. A generation or two ago, people actually had values. Yeah, because, you know, sending your kids to college, that's against having values. If you have values, you'd never send your kids to college. People actually had morals. They, uh, you want to talk about spending time with me? They actually sat around a dinner table together. Yeah, and they talked about when they were at the dinner table, one of the conversations would come up, uh, uh, Johnny, which colleges have you applied f- to? Yeah. Back when I was growing up, that was a common dinner time conversation for young men and women near the end of high school. Weird, huh? They, uh, if you wanted to go to college, you worked your butt off and you paid for it. And you only went to college if you needed college. Like a doctor or a, a, I mean a lawyer. Yeah, you know, you know who else went to college and then also went and got a master's degree? Men who wanted to study for the pastoral office. Pastors. You know what they were required to do back in the day? Go and get a bachelor's degree, usually in in religious studies, you know, and get biblical languages under their belt and be proficient in them before they graduated from college. And then you know what they would do after that? Go four more years at a seminary. Weird, huh? Yeah, because back in the day, most pastors were actually, they had at least a master's degree before they were ever put in the pulpit. Strange, huh? Yeah. Just something I'm noting here historically since he's pining for the old days. Or Or a teacher. And these kids are going, we're, we're, the society's putting all this pressure on these kids. Oh, you got to go to college. Why? What do you want to do with your life? I don't know yet. Well, go to college and figure it out and, and get in tons of debt. And getting mountains of debt, that way, no matter what you decide to do, if, if ladies, if you end up finding a, a man and realizing that God's calling you to be a, a wife and a mother one of these days, you can do that, but you're going to have $80,000 in debt hanging over your head for the rest of your life while you sit there and try to figure this out. You know that there's many different ways to do college. In fact, my kids are in college, and it's weird because they're not doing that. You know what my son did? He joined the Navy. And when he he joined the Navy, he served for four years. He served the United States of America for four years in the United States Navy. And you know what he did? He got a GI Bill. And the and because he served his country, his country's going to pay for his college. You know what my, my, my middle child is doing for college? She didn't go to the Navy. But you know what she's doing? She's going to a junior college to get all of her general educations paid for. And you know what she's doing? She's paying for all of her GEs in cash. Weird, huh? So when she finally graduates from college, she's doing it the pay-as-you-go method. 
Therefore, when she finally graduates, she's not going to have any debt. Strange, huh? You know, there's lots of different ways to do this. And this is the type of society we live in. It's all, we want our kids to be well-educated, well-rounded, all this kind of stuff. And we are sacrificing our children on the altar of success. Well, better than sacrificing them on the altar of failure. And it's scary. Jesus asked this question in Matthew chapter 16, verse 26. He says, now this, okay, first, this is the first reference to the Bible, Matthew chapter 16, and it comes seven minutes into the sermon. If you listen to the opening of the program, I made the point of saying that this isn't a stake. We're not dealing with a sound biblical sermon here. This isn't biblical exegesis. This is a, well, a quote sermon with Bible bacon bits put on top of it. So think of the sermon as like tofu because that as far as I'm concerned tofu and Heath Mooneyhan's opinions are equally reprehensible to me. All right? And so we're going to get a little bit of bible and those are stale bacon bits from a few days ago put just kind of strategically put on top of the tofu of this thing that's called a sermon. So listen to, here we go. We're going to get a verse. And, and what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but you lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your own soul? Yeah, so we get one verse from Jesus, and what was Jesus talking about in that passage? I think we ought to do a little context. I'm curious to see, was Jesus talking in Matthew 16 about the importance of not sacrificing your children on the altar of success and making sure that you don't strive for them to have a well-rounded education. Uh, Well, let's take a look. Matthew 16, verse 21, in context, and we're going to apply our three rules, context, 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 see what this passage says. Now, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his souls? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in glory, in the glory of his Father, and then he will pay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now did Jesus mean by denying yourself that that means you better give up the idea of getting a well-rounded education and going to college because if you do that, I mean, what can you give in exchange for your soul? Not at all. The fact that Heath Mooneyhan would quote this verse out of context in the context of this sermon that he's preaching shows he has no clue what this passage is about. He's just looking around for verses that will support his opinions, and the only way those verses support his opinion is when they're quoted out of context. Well, let's hear more of Heath Mooneyhan's opinions, because they're so great to hear on Sunday morning at church, don't you think? 
Is anything worth more than your own soul? What good does it do if you're well-rounded, well-educated, you're successful, you're happy, you've got all the toys, you've worked your butt off, you're in a mountain of debt, you've got two and a half kids, a dog, a car, and a white picket fence. You are living the American dream, baby. And you're drowning in debt and you hate your life. Uh, Again, that's not what this passage is about. And you're looking for any way to get out. And you're just going along to get along. And it's scary. Because we all just, we don't have to really, you can end up in the American dream without even trying because we're just programmed that way. That's just what you do. Yeah, so it's terrible. I mean, if you go to college and you get married and you have kids and you have a white picket fence and maybe a mortgage and maybe some student loans, you're going to hell. Because the context of that passage is, you know, what can a person give in exchange for his soul, right? So if you're living the American dream, you're going to burn in hell. You get in a ton of debt, and you figure it out by your third marriage, right? And child support, all these different places. Unless you're a deadbeat father that runs out and gets women pregnant and runs out and don't support your own kids. Yeah, because everybody who lives the American dream, you know, goes to college, has a well-rounded education, gets married and has kids in white picket fence, they're going to be running around and they're going to exchange their wives every few years to where they rack up three, four, or five of them because we all know that's exactly what happens automatically if you go to college and you have a well-rounded education and you live the American dream. Then you're a pathetic piece of crap. You're not even a man. Um, um, I'm going to back that up so you can hear that in context because, like I said, this isn't a biblical sermon. This is just Heath Mooneyhan shooting from the hip. Tells us a lot about what goes on inside of his mind, not a lot of what goes on inside of the mind of God as revealed in Scripture. Child support, all these different places, unless you're a deadbeat father that runs out and gets women pregnant and runs out and don't support your own kids, then you're a pathetic piece of crap. You're not even a man. Um, um, the job of the pastor is when somebody's sinning like that is to confront them with their sin and call them to repent and to be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ. Do you think it's appropriate for a pastor to you know talk about a sinner in this state you know and just basically say they're a pathetic piece of whatever? Uh-huh, yeah. Apparently, you don't know the solution to sin offered in the Bible, do you, Heath? But you, you figure it out, and you just, this is the American dream. This is the society. If we do nothing, this is what our kids inherit from us. We've got our government involved in the education system so much to say, we will, we will pay for you to go to school. That's what they tell you. We will pay for you to go to school. Actually, we'll loan you money at a super high interest rate, and we will have you in debt and in bondage to us for the rest of your stinking life so you can go to school to figure out what you want to do with the rest of your life. But at least you'll be well-educated. That'll preach. That's you No, know, it won't, and it's already not. That's scary stuff right there. That's our world. That's what we're living in right now. The most important thing that we can do as parents is impart spiritual life to the next generation. Okay, so we need to impart spiritual life. What does that mean? Because really, answer this question. I know this is going to make some of you mad. Um, you're not going to go to a biblical text to show us this from the Bible? Who cares 
if our kids have better than we had? Who cares? I mean, that's almost sacrilegious in this culture, isn't it? You're like, what do you mean? My kids have to have better than me. They have to have, but because you turned out so wicked, didn't you? You turned out so bad. And we got to give our kids all this stuff. And, oh, we, we're just doing this so our kids, we just want them to have better than what we had. Really, because I, I and I, I feel that, and I sense that, but I want to give my kids the better part of me. I want to be their daddy. I want Kenzie to be their mommy. I don't care if they have all this junk, all this stuff. Who, who ever said that our kids have to have better stuff than we ever had? We are programming them from birth to gather things that they can't afford, to please an ego that they will never be able to please and to please other people that they don't really give a rip about. That's our society. That's what we're training our kids to do. And it's got to start, stop. The most important thing that we can do is impart spiritual life to our kids and next generation. Yeah, and the way you do that is don't give them a well-rounded education or send them to college. Yeah, don't do that. They don't have a spiritual life. All this stuff means nothing. Now, notice what he's trying to preach against and not doing a very good job um, is materialism or consumerism. Uh, The idea that, you know, you live for the next thing that you purchase. Um, There's a real sin there that you could preach against and proclaim Christ and him crucified for our sins as the solution to. That's what he's trying to get at. The problem is, is that because he's shooting from the hip and not actually exegeting a biblical passage, he's literally stumbling all over himself in his own words and sending all kinds of bizarre messages so that the point he's trying to make, it's getting lost. There's one scripture that captures best the picture of this subject matter. In the, okay, now here comes the next Bible bacon bit in, of imparting spiritual life uh, uh, to the next generation. It was found in Psalms 71, verse 18. It was David praying. Psalm 71, verse 18. So we got Matthew 16, verse, I think, what, 26, and now Psalm whatever, verse, yeah. This is no way to preach the Bible. David, King David, he says, Now that I'm old and gray, do not abandon me, O God. Let me proclaim your power to this new generation, your mighty miracles to all who come after me. He was saying, God, let me live just a little bit longer. Let me have another shot at these kids. Let me have another shot at this next generation. I want to spend my last breath telling these kids about how awesome you are, about all the great miracles and all the great might, all the worthiness that you have of our praise. Let me tell my kids this. Let me tell the next generation. I pray that that's our prayer. I hope when I'm old and gray, I'll still be very good looking, that I have that attitude. God, give me more time. Give me more time, God, to tell this next generation that you love them so much and tell them of all the awesome miracles that you've done in my life. I love telling stories, if you haven't figured that out. 
I love telling stories to my kids. I love making up stories. Like, Kenzie doesn't really have me read to him too often because I go off track. <laughs> we will start off. And what does this have to do with the Bible again? We've had two Bible bacon bits, 12 minutes into the sermon, and two out of context things. Now we're hearing more about you, Heath. We're not hearing about Jesus. We're hearing about you, off on like Goldilocks and the Three Bears, and it ends up into the most horrific, awesome murder scene you have ever heard of in your entire life. I'm like, and what is awesome about murder scenes? Seriously, I don't ever recall glorifying murder scenes while telling my kids bedtime stories. That would have given my kids nightmares. I'm like, and then the bear ate her, and there was blood and guts all over the ceiling. And my kids are going. I'd be like, the end. It was awesome, wasn't it? And they're like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I love telling stories, though. I love telling my kids what what God's done in my life, though. And yeah, um, again, don't you love telling them what the Bible says Jesus did and showing them Jesus from all of the Bible stories in the Old Testament? Don't you like telling them about Jesus from God's Word? Your life and your personal testimony does not rise to the level of the Theonoustos, God-breathed Word of God. The important stories for your children to know, the most important, is not necessarily your story. In fact, not your story at all, but the stories found in Scripture, because that's where the God-breathed Word of God is. And if you're, if you're not telling stories to your kids about who God is in your life, no, who God is from Scripture. Big difference. You are missing out. They are missing out. You are missing out on the opportunity to impart spiritual life to them. Um, my story will not impart spiritual life to my kids or anybody else. God's Word does that. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ, Romans ten seventeen says. I love telling the stories to my kid about Daddy wasn't always this way. What about the story about you know you know Peter walking on the water, Jesus healing the sick, you know, uh, Jesus walking on the water himself, or you know the stories of you know Jesus raising Lazarus, Jesus rising from the dead, Jesus driving the money changers out of the temple, uh, you know stuff like that. Jesus being challenged by the Pharisees, you know, you know Jesus telling us about the end of the world, that kind of stuff. Or how Jesus is foreshadowed in the story of David, or how Jesus is foreshadowed in the story of Samson. How Jesus is foreshadowed in the story you know, of Joshua. Pick the story. Why does it have to be about you? I mean, seriously, your life story is not God-breathed. The Word of God, the written Word of God is. I had this conversation with Elijah like two weeks ago. He's like, I love you, Daddy. You're the best Daddy in the world. And blah, blah. He was wanting something, I'm sure. But I was like, hey, but I, I know. But Daddy wasn't always good. Daddy wasn't always a good Daddy. What do you mean? You've always been like the best Dad. Ooh. Dad was uh, dad was crazy. Dad was nuts and weird and mean and and vengeful and psychotic, and uh, had lots of problems before Jesus saved Daddy. Well, what do you? Mean? And then his attention's cut. 
He's like, what do you mean? And so I started telling him all these stories about how, how mean it was. And I would talk, I would talk bad to other people. And, and one time I would, I, I yelled at mommy. And one time I thought about walking out on mommy and all this stuff. But Jesus saved me and Jesus changed my heart and Jesus did all these miracles in my life. And Jesus brought us together as this, this big family. So we're going to spend the rest of our lives, son, worshiping Jesus, giving to Jesus, serving Jesus, telling others about Jesus. And if you're not telling your... Now, if you're going to tell people about Jesus, then get to it. Open up the word of God and preach Jesus. Although he's sitting here talking about how much he wants to tell everybody about Jesus... The person he's really telling everybody about is Heath Mooneyhan. He's not telling people about Jesus. When your kids these stories, who cares if they're going to know the bad stuff about you? This is the truth in life. We're all wicked. We're all bad. Apart from Jesus, we're a dying, desperate world that's destined for hell. And with Jesus, we only have true life with and through Jesus. He's the answer to everything. And our kids need to know about our transformation by Jesus. And if we're not telling them that, we're missing the boat here. We Sure, tell them that and then spend the rest of the time. Yeah, see, I'm going to tell you this once, son. Uh, let me tell you about this and then move on and get right into the Bible and keep pointing them to Jesus in the scriptures. Don't keep retelling and retelling and retelling and retelling your story. Keep telling the story of Jesus in scripture. We are missing out a huge opportunity to be able to impart that spiritual life on our kids. Uh, Telling my kids my story doesn't impart spiritual life. Telling them the story of what Jesus has done for them from scripture does. We are called to unleash a single-minded, Christ-centered, biblically-anchored world changers. Well, in order for them to be Christ-centered and biblically anchored, you'd have to actually preach the Bible, and you're not doing that. That's what we're called to do. I pray that our kids are single-minded, Christ-centered, biblically anchored. I pray that our kids love the Bible more than we do. The truth is, some of you, I mean, if we're really honest, we just don't, not a whole lot of people really love the Bible. I love my Bible. Really, prove it to me by preaching from it in context. Huge blocks of it in context. I love reading my Bible, man. It's crazy stories going on. Apparently, you love reading it but not preaching it, right? Just It's so much different perspective now that I'm on the other side of, of, you know, there's a difference between God's wrath and God's love. And you, it changes the way you look at things. And I, I look at the stories that's in the Bible. Man, I love it. I love God's word. I pray that our kids, my kids love God's word even more than I do. The next generation, they instinctively know that they were created for something more, though. Uh, no, every generation is born dead in trespasses and sins. What you're saying here is not true. <laughs> they don't have this deep desire like we do to accumulate crap that won't last. Our kids don't have this deep desire to accumulate a bunch of junk that won't last like we have the desire for. You know why? I really, I thought about this and I think it's because they were born into a world that's, this world's so much different than what it was whenever I was a kid. Yeah, by the way, this is not true. There's a lot of kids who are young today who are extremely materialistic just like their parents. I mean... 
We've got things like Google and the internet and iPhones and blah, 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 TV and just nine gazillion channels. And they've got the world at their fingertips now and their information overload. And we've got Hollywood and we've got the music scene. And we've got all this stuff. And I believe our kids, have, our world has become flush, full of fake and plastic and it's fake is supposedly the new normal. If you want people to like you, you got to look a certain way. And, you gotta, and so our kids have been growing up in this world. And that's all they've known. And so flashy things aren't going to get their attention for long. Our kids are desiring for authenticity. You mean flashy things like smoke machines and spinning lights and rock and roll shows and secular cover songs in church services you mean like that they are begging for authenticity they are looking for something that is real i believe that with all of my heart when we raise them we have to let them know that they were uniquely created by god for a specific purpose and that here we go again this purpose driven thing didn't we hear this from stephen furtick in the first hour yeah we did it's a core component of the false theology of the purpose-driven movement. His love for him is never-ending. And the things that he wants to do in their lives are going to be so incredible. And we're going to do everything that we can as their parents to help fulfill that dream in their lives. We have got to do this. See, this is always tough stuff to preach whenever, because here's, here's, what, I, here's what I love about Ignite Church, and here's what I kind of, it's weird about Ignite Church. It's full of dudes. And like, not like weenies, like dudes, like you're just straight up dudes. And here's one thing that dudes hate is when another dude tells them how to raise their freaking kids. And so a lot of dudes in this. Now, just a reminder, we are 18 minutes now into the sermon, 18 minutes in, and we've had what, two Bible bacon bits. And yet he tells us how much he loves his Bible and how we need to be Christ-centered and biblically anchored and all this kind of stuff. And yet the sermon doesn't exude Christ-centeredness. It's Hooney Moon, uh, sorry, Heath Mooneyhan-centered. And it doesn't exactly exude biblical grounding at all unless you consider Bible bacon bits to be the breakfast of, of Christ's sheep. It's not. This room right now is just going back and saying, who the heck are you? I'll raise my family however I want. And here's the deal. I respect you, blah, blah, blah. But you need to let this sink in, guys. Maybe, maybe we are so jacked up. Maybe we're so messed up. Maybe the, our, our view is skewed. Maybe God has a better way than what we do. Maybe. What if things keep going the way they're going? I'm telling you, from a daddy to a daddy, we are losing this generation to the world. This world, oh my gosh, I freak out. And yet you just told us how they all pine for authenticity and, and purpose, and yet we're losing them to the world. This is a self-contradictory sermon. Over my kids. My daughter is getting ready to be 10 this week, like Wednesday. I'm tripping. I uh, 
Yeah, I won't say anything to embarrass her, but like there's stuff that goes on and she's getting to that age where stuff's starting to change and all this stuff. And you want to talk about awkward for her father. And I'm just like, I'm like hugging her and I'm going, I don't, I don't, can I hug you anymore? I don't know what's going on. This is weird and all this stuff. And I'm freaking out. And then they're like, boys are looking at her weird. And I'm like, I want to murder eight-year-olds. What's wrong with me? And just, just this world is bombarding these kids. And these, these, some of these parents are going out and dressing these kids up like little floozies. And all, I'm just like, what? I don't want my boy seeing that stuff because I know what GPS they'll be using later on in life. And it's like not cool. I don't like this. And so I don't care if my kids have all the stuff in the world or not. I want them to have Jesus. Jesus is the only thing that matters to me whenever it comes to raising my kids. We have got to pave the way for them. And here's the deal. This is so rough for us because we've got to pave the way for our kids. Let me tell you something. If we go the way of our society, our country. Then why don't you pave the way by, you know, preaching Jesus right now from a biblical text in context. Here's what our country is telling us. Our country says that we can have all the stuff because we need it, need it, need it, need it, need it. And we can spend money we don't have and we can acquire all this debt and stuff. And, and we don't care because we'll, one of these days we'll be dead and our kids will have to deal with it. Great parenting skills. Awesome. That's what our society says is normal. We have got to change this. We have got to change. Listen, moms, dads, you have got to start today. And you've got to sit there and de- determine today regardless. And I know some of you are in bad situations. I know some of you are single mamas and you're just trying to make it work. And, and some of you daddies out there, you're just trying not to kill your kids and all this stuff. And I understand all these things. But listen, we have got to pay this price. We have got to start leading our families well, men. We've got to start praying with our families. I loved it. I, I had lunch with a guy this week, and, and he said, uh, he was telling me he just recently got saved. He said, Jesus saved my life, and I got wet last week, and it was awesome and all this stuff. And, and man, I went home, and Sunday night was so incredible for me because I, I went upstairs, and, and it was time to tuck my kids into bed. And for the first time in my life, I was going to go upstairs and pray with my kids. I was like, man, this is awesome. He's like, it was not awesome. I was scared, man. I was like, you're scared? Oh, yeah, I'm scared. And I, I felt where he's coming from because as guys, man, we're scared, man. We've got our pride, don't we? We, we, we got to look tough in front of our ladies. We got to look really tough in front of our kids. But, man, we're scared to death with this Jesus thing, aren't we? We're like, we don't want to screw up our kids. And so I remember, like, I couldn't even get my own prayer life right. And, and so I was scared to pray with my kids. And this guy was terrified to pray with his kids. He's like, my kids prayed. And they were, like, thanking God for peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and stuff like that. And then, then my wife prayed with him. And it was really awesome. And then it was, like, my turn. I was afraid to open up my mouth because I was afraid I was going to puke all over my kids. <laughs> I said, I feel you. I feel you. I'm the same way, man. Like, I remember whenever I first committed to just start praying with my family, I was like, scared boy I was really I was really nervous around my kids and it's just like man it's so awesome my kids have taught me so much about praying I love the way that my kids pray I love their innocence I love just how 
flat out honest they are. And we think we've got, we think we got it figured out, don't we, as adults? We think we've got to deliver these big old elaborate speeches to God. Guess what? He's heard it all. You might as well shoot straight with him. He's heard it all. And, but we get so nervous. We get so nervous and we got to, oh, we got to say this. That, just pray with your kids. Just pray with your kids. I'll be like, well, you know, I, I used to be like, oh, oh well, hey, uh, all right, so close your eyes because we're supposed to do that. Close your eyes, kid. Close your eyes. <laughs> Jesus, I thank you for this kid. He's pretty awesome except for today. And, and, but he's really awesome most of the time. And God, like, I don't give him nice dreams and stuff. Just let him know that that monster that he thinks living in his closet isn't real. He's like cocking an eye open, like, Dad, there's a monster in my closet? What are you talking about? <laughs> so I'm, I, I blow it, you know? I blow it. And that's, that's the fear of fathers is that we blow it. Let me tell you something, guys. You keep blowing it. You keep blowing it. You keep blowing it for your kids. You keep swinging away because I want my kids to know me, but I, I don't care if they, my kids grow up and, oh, daddy was this and daddy was that. Daddy made a ton of money and daddy had all these cool toys and daddy was this. And but, Hey, I want them to know daddy loved their mama. Daddy was crazy about his kids. He worked hard to provide for us. And daddy above all loved Jesus. And he told us about Jesus and he prayed with us. If my kids can say those things, I have succeeded as a parent. It's not about how cool you can be and how much junk you can give your kids. What's the love you're showing them in the house? Do they know how passionate you are about Jesus? The honest truth is, no. Because you don't even know how passionate you are about Jesus. I, uh, I'm going to skip over this. Dude. Stop telling me how passionate you are about Jesus. I would know you were passionate about Jesus if you would stop talking about yourself and actually talk about Jesus from a biblical text. Deuteronomy thing. Well, no, I'm not. I'm going to let me real quick. I'm out of time because I sang to you. So you're stuck. Deuteronomy. They're out of time. Oh, yeah. Now here comes bacon. Bible bacon bit number three, right? Deuteronomy chapter six. Moses giving his final speech before he dies. He says, listen, O Israel, this is and we've all heard this part. This is the Lord our God and the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. But here's the rest of it that we forget sometimes. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands I'm giving to you today. Repeat them again and again to who? Your children. You repeat what again? That would require you to teach your children what God's word really says. <clears throat> you haven't done that. Any child in attendance at Ignite Church yesterday didn't actually hear God's word, his commandments, what Christ has done. They've heard nothing except for three Bible bacon bits out of context and Heath Mooneyhan failing at an attempt to do a stand-up comedy routine while being bold and in the face of the fathers there at, at, at his church. And he's failing. You've got to repeat how awesome God is and how worthy he is of our praise and our honor and our sacrifice and our worship again and again and again. And they'd know that if you'd actually preach the Bible.
Talk about them whenever you're at home with your kids, when you're on the road with the kids, when the kids are throwing junk in the back seat. Talk about Jesus. Why don't you model that for us by preaching about Jesus during your sermon? When you're going to bed, when you're getting up, time to your time to your hands. Wear them on your foreheads, weirdos. Hippies. As reminders. Remind yourself everywhere. Your whole home should be so full of Jesus and reminders of him. Write them on your doorpost of your house and on your gates. So you got to impart life, spiritual life to your children. And there's three practical ways that you've got to do this. And I encourage you real quick. The first one is... In- Are these three practical ways found in the Bible? You've given us three Bible bacon bits and no Bible. Enlist supporting voices. Enlist supporting voices when it comes to Jesus and raising your kids. Surround yourself. This is why community is so important here at this church. Say, is Sunday morning's it? I hope you find a friend. I hope that you will put yourself out there a little bit and get involved in community around here. Let me get involved in community. Where have I heard this? Let me tell you something. They say it takes a village to raise a kid. I don't know if that's true or not, but I can promise you this. It takes a village to raise four kids. (laughs) One, two, three, four. I'm crazy. One, two, three, four. Four kids. Three of them boys. They're kind of boys. They're like half boys, half Siberian tigers. (laughs) They're awesome. And let me tell you something. Me and Kinsey would not know what to do if it wasn't for our church family. There are so many people in this place. I mean, just our family. So many people help raise our kids. And they're speaking life into our kids. And they are taking care of our These aren't our friends. These are our family. Well, hopefully somebody somebody in your village community is actually preaching the Bible to your kids. Because you're not. We love each other's kids. We're there for each other. If you're missing out on that, you get involved in community. Your kid's spiritual future depends on it. Mm, So imparting spiritual whatever is done by the community. Another sermon where community is the savior. No, thanks. My savior's name is Jesus. He's not a community. You have got to make that stand. Second thing is raise the expectations. Raise the expectations in your kid's life. Some of you baby your kids and you spoil the living snot out of your kids. All because you want your kids happy, happy, happy. Let me tell you what you're honestly doing to your kids. You're going to get mad and whatever. All you're doing by giving your kids stuff and spoiling them and babying them their whole lives, all you're doing is fattening up the calf for a slaughter. Because one of these days, life is going to punch your sweet little baby right between the eyes. And all you've done is babied them their whole lives. And all you've done is given them junk. And they're entitled and all this stuff. You are fattening the calf for slaughter. And you have got to stop spoiling your kids. Raise the expectations in their lives. 
There's people out there with teenagers. Holy cow, you got teenagers. And you're talking to them like they're eight. You're pretending like they don't know what some of these sex things going on out there. And you're pretending like you don't know what's on TV. And and that they're not watching porn on their iPhones and all this stuff. You got your head in the sand. You better pull it out. You got to raise the expectations. You need to be involved in your kid's life. And don't, don't... Don't buy into this world. You know, this, this world says you're not an adult until whatever. You can keep kids on your health insurance until you're like 85. <laughs> because they're not old enough to have it on their own. I mean, at 15, they can abort babies. But they're not an adult until they're 26. They still be on your insurance. This world is not waiting for your kids to grow up. You better stop waiting too. You better act like they are growing up. And you better raise the expectations in their life. And the final thing you need to do is keep it real. Keep it real, homies. This is so hard for a lot of parents. Uh, My wife's mother is one of them. I love my mother-in-law. She's just, she doesn't keep it real. Um, Fantasy world. Woo. So like two days before we're getting married, she's like stuttering all over her words and stuff. And she was like out with her daughter and it's like the big day and all this stuff. And her mom's just like starting to get nervous. Well, maybe I should have, I don't know how to tell you. And uh, yeah, well, maybe we should have had this talk a a long time ago. And maybe I should take you to the uh, uh, doctor and talk to you about uh, birth control. Mom, had that covered for years, for years. I was growing up, and you can pretend that reality doesn't exist, and you can pretend like I'm your sweet little girl, but life happens. You better get involved in your kid's life. And you've got to be so real and transparent. These kids know way more than you think. Just, you're going to have to get real with your kids. I know that's so hard for a lot of us. You know what? uh, The Bible says this in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11. When I was a child, when I was a child, I spoke and I thought. Okay, another Bible bacon bit from 1 Corinthians 13. Hmm. Yeah, this is the section that's talking about what? Uh, spiritual gifts. That's the major topic of this section of um, 1 Corinthians. It's not about getting real with your kids. And I reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, everybody has to grow up. I put away childish things. It's scary. It's scary, guys. It's scary, scary, scary what our kids are facing, what you guys are facing. It's hard. Man, 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 man. I, I got to talk to you for a second because I don't even know how to talk to women. I just know how to sing to them. <laughs> women will start crying. I'm just, I'm done. I'm like, ooh, take whatever. Yeah, take my car. I don't care. I can't handle crying woman, but I can talk to you men. Men, you have got to. 
I don't care where you're at. You've got to start praying with your families. You've got to start telling your, your kids about Jesus. Yeah, why don't you model that for us by doing it during your sermons from a biblical text? You've got to. You've got to start praying with your wife. And you think your kids are intimidating. You're... You know what? If you were really doing a good job as a pastor, you'd model what it looks like to pray so that the men in your congregation could follow your example. Your wife is way more intimidating. Let me tell you something, ladies. Your man either has already become or is rapidly becoming what you think about him. And I know, guys, you're, you're so scared. You don't want to embarrass yourself because you've got to look cool in front of your lady. But you've got to start praying with her. And say, well, I don't know when's a good time. How about dinner tonight? It's Mother's Day. You cook her dinner. You cook her some dinner. And then you pray with your wife. You hold her hand and you say, Jesus, thank you so much for this awesome grilled asparagus. (laughs) Amen? And ladies... When your husband prays over the asparagus tonight, you know how much guts that took of him to do that. And here's what you do. Baby. I I love the way you prayed over the asparagus. Turns me on. Let's put these kids to bed. Mama's got dessert. Oh, laugh, laugh. And then you watch how he prays over the T-bone next week. I preach, yeah. Guys, I'm just I'm saying all this to tell you. It's, life's too short to worry about pride and crap. You've got to lead your families, men. Women, you've got to let them lead. And newsflash, I want to take all the worry out of it. They will screw it up. Okay? We're just going to do it. You just keep supporting. And you keep going because this is God's intended plan. That the men would lead. And ladies, I know that some of you have been leading for so long. You know, it's a great idea for men to lead and a great idea for men to pray and to lead their family in prayer, and to tell them about Jesus. That's all great. Show me this from the biblical text, please. Your job, pastor, is to preach the word. You're not doing it. Long And that burden has been unrightfully put on you. And I'm just saying that sometimes our ways don't work, and we just need to do it Jesus' way, and I don't want to lose my kids, do you? No. I don't want to lose your kids either. Let's pray. And thankfully, that <clears throat> was the end of the sermon. Masloration, I think, is about right. So four Bible bacon bits over a 30-minute rant is probably the right way of putting it. Uh, and what do we get? Do we learn anything about Jesus? Yeah, no. Do we learn a lot about Heath Mooneyhan? More than I ever cared to ever know. I learned more about him than I did about 
Jesus for sure, any biblical character for that matter. And, I mean, in the opening was just a complete and utter train wreck when it came to just basic lucid thought. You know, giving us your opinions about, you know, raising well-rounded children and making it sound like from the pulpit, although it was probably a stage, that, you know, maybe it's not a good idea if you're a Christian to have well-rounded children, you know, and send them to college and stuff. What a mess. An absolute mess. What What's causing this? Well, Heath Mooneyhan isn't doing his job. His job is to proclaim Christ, to preach the word. He's not doing it. Four Bible bacon bits. That's what they got over a plate load of tofu, which, by the way, I think is probably one of the most vile things on the planet. <sighs> what a mess. I, I'm <clears throat> I'm going to go and go for a walk and maybe kind of decompress a little bit. This, I mean, this is absolutely ridiculous that this is what's passing as Christian teaching nowadays and that guys like Heath Mooneyhan are considered to be cutting-edge church planters and church leaders. Anything but. That kind of preaching turns people into, well, completely, well, they're not even Christian at the end of the day, are they? What was Christian about that sermon? Do they know their Bible better? Do they know Jesus better? Have they been brought to repentant faith and trust in Christ? Have they heard about the forgiveness? No, none of that. Nothing Christian about this. This type of preaching produces this type of disciple, which is incapable of actually coherently communicating what the Christian faith is and being effective in evangelizing the next generation, yet alone their next-door neighbor. (sighs) So what do you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>